Good morning, everybody. I tell you what, I don't know about you, but I feel the presence of the Lord in this place this morning, don't you? I'm so happy. I'm so glad to be in his presence with you all this morning. Um, Over the last several weeks, as we have been going through John chapters 13 through 16, you have heard me use a phrase that uh, I learned from an old Bible teacher a long time ago. And after really studying these chapters for so long, I have to agree that chapters 13 through 16 is very much the holy place of Scripture. And it's in these chapters, it's, it's only in these chapters, right at the very end, right before Jesus is about to be arrested and crucified, it's the only place in Scripture where Jesus takes his disciples aside and he tells them about this incredible gift that he intends to give them because of his ascension. He's about to leave and he's about to send this gift. And so John chapters 13 through 16 has been all about explaining this gift that we have as a part of this new covenant and all the new things that come as a result of this. Well, if John chapters 13 through 16 this morning is the holy place of Scripture, then as we come into John chapter 17 this morning, we come to the holy of holies. A lot of Bible commentators uh, called this chapter in John the Jesus's high priestly prayer. Because in this chapter, Jesus, our high priest, opens up the veil, if you will, and he allows us to peer behind that veil and see right into his heart. What's at the very center of his heart, what's on his heart in terms of his mission and what he's about to accomplish for God's will, and also what's on his heart for you and me. Nowhere in all the Bible does Jesus open up like he does in John chapter 17. And we're going to talk about that here in just a moment. Now, up until this point, uh, we've talked about several new things that are, are coming because of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's a new commandment. We're told to love one another, but Jesus is the model. He's the example. Uh, we have a new relationship with God. He says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. But while I'm going to prepare a place for you, I'm also coming to prepare a place for you on the inside on the inside of your life. A new day, which is when all these things are going to begin, which is the day of Pentecost. A new prayer life, where if you pray according to the will and the mission of Jesus Christ, he makes a promise to you and he says, I will do that very thing that you have prayed when it comes to my kingdom. A a new teacher. uh, We talked about the Holy Spirit as being our teacher, how he is uh, given to us to uh, remind us and teach us and guide us and to show us things, even things that are yet to come. Uh, Jay showed us some of those examples in his testimony earlier from Bible class where the Spirit told him where to go, who to talk to, what to say, uh, the provisions that he was going to be given, things that he didn't even know yet that were going to happen. It's one of the ways in which the Holy Spirit works. And then we talked about last week a new fruitful life, how that the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you is to produce the holy life that God requires you to live. So he produces the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, last week, the last new thing that we talked about is a new life mission. How that when heaven pours light into you and you become light in the midst of this dark world that we live in, well, guess what? That is going to cause other people to treat you the way that they treated Jesus in the first century. So persecution is part of the deal that comes along with it. But there's a joy that he gives you in the midst of suffering. Amen? There's a joy that he gives you because you know that you're in the midst of God's will. Now, this morning, after Jesus teaches his disciples about these things, 
uh, and all the things that they can expect from the indwelling Holy Spirit, Jesus then goes into a time of intercessory prayer for his disciples. Now, what is intercessory prayer? Intercessory prayer is when you place yourself between God and the person and the situation that needs to be prayed for. You are interceding on that person's behalf. You're going to God for that person. And so after he tells them all these new things that they can expect as a part of the gift of the Holy Spirit, he gets to John chapter 17 and he just begins to pray. He begins to intercede for his disciples. And this entire chapter is going to be the final new thing that comes as a result of having the indwelling Holy Spirit. I want to go ahead and just put it on the board for you this morning. The last new thing, John chapter 17, that comes as a result of this shared experience of the Spirit is that you and I get to have a new kind of kingdom community. A new kind of kingdom community. You know, they say you can learn a lot about a person by listening to their prayers. Would you agree with that? You listen to somebody's prayers... And you can get an idea, not completely, but you can kind of get an idea of the depth of that person's relationship, the knowledge that they have in the scriptures, the, the, the life mission, whether their life is in line with God. You can tell a lot about a person by how they pray. And it's interesting because when you listen to this prayer, when you get into John chapter 17, we get an incredible glimpse at the heart of Jesus. We get this incredible glimpse at what he felt was the most important when it comes to praying. What he felt was the most important thing when it came to his life and his purpose and his mission. And not only that, when we look at this prayer in John chapter 17, we get a insight into what is at the very center of his heart for his disciples. Now, We've been talking about over the last several weeks how these words that he talks about in John 13 through 17, it's not just for the disciples in the first century. It's for you and I as well. So when we get into John chapter 17, we're going to look into the deepest place of Jesus' heart when he prays for you and me. I want to hear that this morning, don't you? What is on the heart of Jesus Christ, our Savior, for you and me? Now, this prayer... You could break it down into three sections. In John chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, Jesus prays about some of his own concerns. Uh, He wants to make sure that he glorifies the Father. And that's what he prays about in the first few verses. And then in verses 9 through 19, Jesus switches the prayer and he begins to pray for his personal disciples, things specifically that the 11 are going to face right after his ascension and right after they start the work of the ministry from the book of Acts chapter 2 on. And then in verses 20 through 26, Jesus then prays not for his disciples, but for their disciples. Which, by the way, hasn't happened yet. So when we get to the last part of this prayer, he's praying for the future church. He's praying for you and me, amen? I don't know about you, but I want to hear what he has to say about that prayer, about that prayer for you and I. So let's go ahead and get into it this morning, guys. If you would, take your Bibles out. If you're not already over there, let's go to John chapter 17. And we're just going to read through this chapter this morning and kind of glean out some things for you and me, okay? Let's start reading verse 1. Now it says, after Jesus said this. Now you and I have been in the context of this now for several weeks. After he says what? After he says all that he says in John 13 through 16, right? 
All those new things that come as a result of having the indwelling Holy Spirit. So then you get to, to, to 17 verse 1. After Jesus said this, all those things, he looked toward heaven and he prayed. And here's what he said. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those that you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on the earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Now, I want you to notice something here about the prayer that Jesus prays. There is no self-seeking whatsoever in the prayer. Did you notice that? He didn't pray for himself really at all. I said he's praying for himself, but what's he praying for specifically? He's praying that what he's about to do, this, this last effort that he's about to go through to carry out the will of God, he says, my only prayer is that as I do this, I glorify you. That's the only reason why I'm doing this, because I want to glorify the Father in heaven. Jesus prays for himself, but it's not for himself. He wants to be obedient to the will. Jesus knows that he came from the Father. Jesus knows that he's the incarnation of the Son of God. He has lived on the earth. He has taught people. He has shown God who God really is. He's shown people how to really keep God's law. And he's been the best example that, 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 that there possibly can be of what an indwelt Holy Spirit-led person looks like. And now we get to the very end. And Jesus says, I'm ready to finish the work that you sent me to do. And I want you to not miss this. Because this is so key. Remember in verse 1, Jesus said, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Well, what is the glory that he's talking about here? Glorify your son. Think about what he's about to suffer. Okay? He says, I'm ready to receive it. I've been doing your work. I've been working on your will my entire life. But I'm now facing the cross. And he looks at the cross and he says, now glorify me so I can glorify you. Folks, do you realize what he's saying? The glory that he's talking about here is the glory of facing the cross. That's huge. And I want you to think about that for a minute because for Jesus, the cross is not a place of shame. For Jesus, the cross is a place of honor. It's a place of victory. And we, in our time, in our day, with all the the cushy comforts that we like to enjoy in modern-day 21st century America, we have a hard time with that. Because we don't want anything like that. And yet, it says it here. It's really simple. And, and how, how can the cross be a place of honor? It's really simple. When your heart is to want to obey God and do His will, when you're living wholeheartedly for the Father, it doesn't matter where He sends you or what He tells you to do. Even if it takes you to the cross, you're going to do it because you want to glorify your Father because you know that He knows best. Amen? So Jesus welcomes the cross. It's an honor to him to receive the cross because he knows in the end it's going to glorify God. 
He knows in the end that on the other side, that what the Father wants more than anything is that for you to accept the salvation that has been offered to you so that you might receive the forgiveness of sins, the final sacrifice, and so that you might be brought into reconciliation with the Father. That's Jesus' will. That's the Father's will. That's why it says in the Bible that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. So he does all of this for you and me. Now, in just a moment, beginning in verse 6, Jesus is going to spend the whole rest of the prayer talking about his disciples, his immediate disciples and their disciples, the whole church. And his whole emphasis of the rest of this chapter is going to be for his desire, his prayer for the church to be one. One. Can I be honest with you about something? I have a really hard time with this one. I told you the story when I was a kid. When I first became a Christian, I had this desire. I love the plea that we have in the churches of Christ. The plea is a restoration plea. A lot of people forget this. But our churches, the churches of Christ, was started originally to be a unification movement. The idea behind our churches was let's lay aside the denominational baggage. Let's lay aside the names. Let's lay aside the differences. And let's unite under one person, one name, Jesus Christ. That's how we started. When Jesus started his church in the first century in the book of Acts, how many were there? There was one church. One church. I was curious. I looked on the statistics the other day. I was curious to see how many there are today. And according to some study out of some college somewhere, I can't remember which seminary it was, that as of today, there are over 45,000 different splits and denominations within the church. Good Lord. I tell you what, Jesus has answered all kinds of prayers for you and I over the years, but he's got this one prayer that he wants his church to answer. And this is one prayer. It's not that we answer the prayer. He answers the prayer, but we surrender to the prayer. But there's this one focus that he has, and he says, I want my church to be one. That has bothered me for so long. I mean, our churches, we started off as a unification movement, but then something went wrong along the way. I don't know what happened. You know, I think here's what happened. We went back to the book of Acts and we said, through reason, let's figure out what they did and let's emulate that. And if we emulate what they did, then we can be like the first century church. But what we wound up with was a lot of new traditions that sort of kind of look like the first century way of doing church. But we calcified. We became our own denomination. And instead of standing for one church, we became just one among many others. I'm speaking truth this morning. You know I'm telling the truth. What we should have done in the restoration movement is go back to the book of Acts and look at those people and say, what was it that gave them their fire? What was it that gave them their, the motivation, the mission? It was because of the Holy Spirit. What we should have restored was the life of the church, not just the functions and how they did church. So my main point this morning is when we're looking at this text, I think if we look very carefully, Jesus is actually answering the prayer for us and showing us how the modern church can be one again. Let me give you an example. See if you agree with me. This is stuff that, I, that the Lord showed me this week, okay? 
I had no idea what I was going to say in this sermon until a few days ago. And I was going into the text and I said, Lord, I know that it's your will for us to be one. I know that's your will. So if it's your will for us to be one, how can that happen? Here's what I found. Well, when you take the first few verses from John 17, verses 1 through 5, here's what I discovered. The foundation for kingdom unity in the church is a shared commitment to grow in our relationship with God and with Jesus Christ through the gift of the indwelling spirit. Okay? And and you think about that, that's the model that Jesus gave us. See, remember, Jesus never tells you to do anything that he has not already done first. He's the perfect model for what he tells you to do. So when you look at the life of Jesus, did he have a commitment to grow in his relationship with God? You bet it. His entire life, he was always spending time with the Lord, growing deeper in his relationship with God. And so we do the same thing. We seek to grow in our relationship with God, with Jesus, through the gift of the indwelling spirit as we seek God in his will. And then secondly, the second part of that is, is that we, we also need to have a shared commitment to carrying out God's will no matter what the cost so that we can glorify God. See, these are just two things that I gleaned from the example that Jesus gave us. Let me tell you something. If you find a group of people who are united under the name of Jesus and they have a commitment to growing in their relationship with God and they're trying to seek God with their whole heart and they also have a commitment to following God's will no matter what, even to the point of death, let me tell you something. You have found a brother and sister in Christ. That is a brother and sister in Christ. I don't care what name is out front on the sign. That's a brother and sister in Christ. That's kingdom. That's not a church, that's kingdom. I'll add this. I won't add this, I'm going to keep going. Let's get to the next part of the prayer, verse 6. This is where he prays specifically for the 11. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And, you have obeyed, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me comes from you. For I gave them the words that you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you have sent me. And one of the things that Jesus says that kind of comes as a surprise to some people is that nothing in Jesus' life was original. You realize this? Everything that he did, the Father told him to do it. He listened to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit said, do this. Everything that that Jesus taught, it was because he spent alone time with the Father and he heard what the Spirit wanted him to say and to teach. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus says, everything that the Father has given me, I have given them. There really wasn't anything that new and unique. But you know what was unique in his life? That he's the model for, for you and I? He walked with the presence of the Spirit. That was different. Up until this point, the Spirit had come upon people, but the Spirit was not residing in people as of yet. Jesus is the first example of what it looks like to be a man indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So that's unique. And the second thing that's unique about Jesus is his commitment to prayer. If you notice that Jesus didn't just launch out and do anything. Jay's a great example of this. You don't mind if I pick on you for a minute. You're, you're a great sermon illustration, brother. <laughs> okay? But, but Jay's a great example of this because when you think about what he's modeling for us and this, this life that he's trying to model for us is that he prayed things into being. 
He didn't just say, I think I'm going to start this ministry, Lord, will you bless it? He went to the Lord, he prayed, he fasted, he heard exactly what the Lord wanted him to do. He knew the promises of Scripture. He began to line his prayers up with the promises of Scripture. And he knew that God always is faithful to the promises of Scripture. And so he literally would pray things into being. That's exactly the model that you and I are supposed to have, that we're supposed to live. Look at verse 9. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those that you have given me, for they are yours. And all that I have is yours and all that you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you have given me so that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, first and foremost. If we're going to talk about uniting as one church, what is the one name that you and I unite under? Jay, will you stand up? (laughs) Look at this guy's shirt. What name do we unite under? Yeshua, Jesus. Thank you, Jay. All right, I won't pick on you no more for the rest of the sermon, I promise. No more. We can rest, okay? Okay, Jesus, Yeshua. Now watch this. Not only does that tell you under whose name we unite under, but that also tells you the limitations to our unity. Jesus is the only name by which one must be saved. There's only one way. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God over all, in all, through all. Okay? So he's the name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 12. Keep reading with me in the prayer. While I was with them, I protected them, and I kept them safe by the name that you gave me, Yeshua, Jesus. None has been lost except the one that was doomed to destruction, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Now, I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Did you hear this language? I mean, my goodness, this this is the kingdom that you and I live in right now. Just as Jesus lived in the world, but was not of the world, he was of heaven. So too, you and I, we live in Snyder, but we're not of Snyder. We are of heaven. This place right here is supposed to be uniquely different than any other place in Snyder, Texas. This house right here. Verse 15, let's keep reading. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. So sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. I love these, I love these last verses because um, you can hear the passion of Jesus here. Because he's talking about his mission. He's talking about the purpose of why he's come. And, and again, he, he says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world. My prayer is that you keep them in the world. My prayer is that you would empower them to carry out what I started 2,000 years ago. But here's what I ask. I ask you, God, that as, as I send them out into the world, that you protect them from the evil one. You give them a covering over them so that way they can operate behind enemy lines, if you will. 
right? And carry out the kingdom of God, even despite what the enemy is doing around them. That's what he's saying in the text. Look at verse 19 again. One more time. Verse 19. He says, for them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Now, to me, that's incredible because what Jesus is saying is he's saying that when he ascends to heaven, he's got one role. He's going to set himself apart. You realize what that means, right? If, if I set something apart for God's use, I don't know. This is probably a bad example, but but this clicker here, this is not a common clicker. This is a church clicker. Okay, this has been set aside for special purposes. We don't take that down and watch the Monday night football game at, at my house, right? I mean, we could, but that, we were not going to do that. Okay, but, but here's the thing. This is a set-apart clicker, right? So Jesus says, I have set myself apart. They're set apart. You guys are all set apart for God's work. And when he ascends to heaven, he says, I'm going to set myself apart for one purpose, to help carry out my will in my church. So here's what he's committed to doing. And he's working on this right now, despite the fact that we've got 45,000 different denominations. He has set himself apart to help his church know God, to help his church to be one, and to help his church accomplish the mission that he's given us. So as we think about unity and how we can apply these things today. The foundation of kingdom community is first built upon two shared commitments. Jesus is the model for those shared commitments. Number one, a shared commitment to grow in our relationship with God and with Jesus through the gift of the indwelling spirit. And number two, a shared commitment to carrying out God's will, no matter what the cost, so that we can glorify God. Now, we may differ in different churches what we believe God's will to be. We may differ in different churches on how we feel like his will should be accomplished. But where we agree is that Jesus is king and we must devote ourselves to his purposes no matter what. That's where we can agree. Amen? Okay. So as we think about this, if if you find people who have those same commitments, number A, A and B up there, if you find people who have those shared commitments, guess what? You have found a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't care what's on the front of the church. I don't care the name that they've got. That's a disciple of the Lord. They're seeking him with his whole heart. And then with what we just read in verses 6 through 19, we can add this, that Jesus is teaching us that when you find disciples of Jesus like that, that's special. That's really, really special. Because when you find disciples of Jesus like that, it's so different. Those are people who live set-apart lives. When people are doing A and B up there, they're set apart. They're set apart just for God's purposes. When a church is doing A and B, they are set apart for God's purposes. Now watch this. Verses 6 through 19 tells us that when people are living like this, Jesus said in Matthew 18, verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst You say, well, isn't that true of every church that gets together? I don't think it is. Because there's a lot of churches that get together for a lot of purposes. But some of them get together, and it's not for the name of Jesus. It's not for his glory. It's not for his purposes. It's not really for his will. You can sometimes take um, the Holy Spirit out of a church, and they never know the difference. I mean, I've preached in churches my whole life, and we never once preached a sermon on the Holy Spirit, and we never knew the difference. But there is something unique 
And if you've ever been in a body of people who know the Holy Spirit, it's different. There's a different quality. There's different things that happen in that service when you have more and more people awake to the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of them and inside the church. So here's my point. When Christians choose to live like this, they together begin to manifest the presence of Jesus. There's a certain Holy Spirit presence, His power and authority. There's a spiritual thickness that that comes in the room when Christians lay down their denominational differences and unite only under Jesus Christ. Only under those two shared commitments. And as they commit to living in the kingdom community like this, Jesus then commits to giving them a special anointing of his power. Not only to gift them for the church, but also to gift them for the mission. You say, well, Tim, I don't know. Is that in the Bible somewhere? You bet it is. It's called Acts chapter 2. Because in Acts chapter 2, you've got all these people from all different backgrounds, all different walks of life, all kinds of different beliefs. And they're there under one name, Jesus Christ. And they're there with two shared commitments. They're there to grow in their relationship with God through the indwelling Holy Spirit because Jesus himself said to go there and wait for him. And they're also there because they have a shared commitment to carry out God's will. Jesus had already told them in Matthew 28, go into all the world, preach the gospel. He says, all I want you to do is I want you to go and I want you to wait in that upper room for the gift of the Spirit and then you're gone. You can go do it, right? There is a special Holy Spirit anointing that takes place when God's people are united under those conditions. Keep reading with me. Verse 20. Jesus prays for all the believers, you and I included. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them, All of them. My CR people. Where's my CR? All of them. There you go. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And now you understand why I say reading these words is like standing in the Holy of Holies. Because we're talking about mutual indwelling here. And it's, it's Jesus' will. A couple things that we can pull out from this text that we just read. Number one, absolute, 100%. It is Jesus' will and prayer that all of us who say that we follow Jesus be one. That's God's will. There's no room for 45,000 different names and denominations. Jesus' will is that there be one, one body of Christ, one church, one kingdom. And number two, the model for this, because again, Jesus models everything for us, (laughs) everything. But the model for this is Jesus' oneness with the Father. And what was it that made the oneness with the Father the way that it was? It was because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's what made the oneness. See, this is something really important to remember. Unity, as as Jesus envisions it for his church, the kind of unity that's coming, by the way, in the next revival. I will tell you this, it's coming. And one of the reasons why, I I was up at um, at the walk meeting yesterday, getting ready for the men's walk. And I was sitting there and I was talking to a brother. 
And he said, you know, I remember something you said a few weeks back when you were talking about how that the Lord has sent you here because he's going to do an outpouring here in Snyder. He's going to do an outpouring in this area. And and he's sending people to get ready for that. He says, don't you know? He says, I want you to know this. He said, after I spoke with you, this was the last walk meeting a month ago. He said, I've spoken to four other people where the Lord has shown them the same exact thing. God has his eyes on Snyder, Texas for a reason. And I don't know what it is. I believe that it's going to involve an outpouring. I've prayed for the last seven years, Lord, when you get ready to start pouring out the Holy Spirit the way that you did in the book of Acts chapter 2, may I be among the first to receive the drops, the first drops that fall. I want it. I want it. So as we think about this, this, this is something that's so important to remember because he is the one that makes unity possible. I want you to understand this. Um, this is why Jesus says this in the very next verse. Look at verse 22 with me. We're going to wrap up here. Verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me. Now listen carefully to what he says. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one even as we are one. And again, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought into complete unity. In other words, there's still work to do. He gives this glory to us the same way God gave a glory to him, the result of which the purpose is so that they may grow closer and closer and closer together in unity. Well, watch this. One of the main purposes of having the indwelling Holy Spirit, the I and M, I and them and you and me, is so that he can produce in us enough fruit of the Holy Spirit so that we can be one. I'm going to go ahead and say it. The reason why there's 45,000 different denominations in the church today is because we don't know the Holy Spirit. We have preached Him right out the church building. And in some churches that are embracing the Holy Spirit, the pendulum is swinging all the way to the other side and they're getting off into emotionalism. Not everybody. Not everybody. But there's a balance between the Spirit and the Word. A balance between the Spirit and the Word. Now, watch this. When we allow the Spirit to come in and to glorify us. By the way, what's the glorifying us that he's talking about there? What glory does God give us? That's the Spirit. See, that's the glory he's given us the same way the Father gave the Spirit to the Son. The purpose, he said, is to bring that unity, that oneness. Now, when we allow the Spirit to glorify us by enabling us to live as a kingdom community, then that then allows us to glorify the Father. Look at what he says here in 21 and 23. He says it two times in John chapter 17. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Church, when we live as the kingdom, we bring glory to God. Because that's when the world sees that Jesus is real. That his power is on the earth. And when they're near that, they want some of that. They realize, wow, wait a minute. These people are actually living the very things that they preach. They're being one church. Jesus concludes the end of this chapter. And he says in verse 24, Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory and the glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, Though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. 
I have made you known to them. And I will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Again, incredible words. I don't even really have the words as a preacher to even try to convey it. I hope that it's, it's getting from here to there. I don't know that if it is, but, but Jesus promises us that in this kingdom community, in this shared experience that we get to have with the Holy Spirit, that we will get to experience a deeper and deeper and deeper manifestation of the presence of Jesus in our community so that we can know Him better. That's His commitment to us. The more we invite the Spirit into these worship services, the more He will manifest Himself to us. And that the main work of the Spirit from this day on is to show you the love that God has for you, the same love that God has for Jesus. That's it. I can't even imagine. I asked my kids one time, how much does God love Jesus? Whole bunch, he said. Well, guess what? That's the same amount of love that he loves you with. A whole bunch. So the main point, I'm going to wrap it up here, summarize the whole thing. As we think about the foundation of unity, the foundation of unity for the kingdom is built upon two shared commitments. A shared commitment of number one, to love God with your whole heart, pursue a relationship with Him with everything you got. And number two, to join up with other people and carry out God's will to the best of your ability, no matter what it is. You find people who have those two shared commitments, you found a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's somebody who's in the kingdom. Number two, when disciples of Jesus live like this through the Holy Spirit, it's special. It's special. Jesus manifests Himself more powerfully in groups like this. And uh, people who are truly set apart from him, who are seeking to live as the body of Christ. Why? You think about it. Why does Jesus anoint groups of people like this more so than other churches or other groups? It's because collectively, they've already set themselves aside for the work of the church. They're not tangled up with the world. They're not tangled up in sin. That, that, takes a lot more, that takes a lot more work to untangle all that mess and work with somebody. But when you've got a church of people who are all on fire, and they're all letting go of sin... And they're all seeking love and unity. And they're all over here together with their hands open. Say, Lord, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do it. Whatever you say, I'll say it. Wherever you tell me to go, I'll go. That invites the anointing. And Jesus will pour out the anointing to give them what they need to carry out his mission and his purposes. And then finally, number three this morning. When we live like this, when we live as the kingdom community, not only are we glorified as the purified bride of Christ... That's a glory we get to have. But even more so than that, we give glory to Jesus because when we're really living like the church, the world believes that Jesus is real. They look at that and go, there's something different here. The presence of God. And so as we close, we come to the very epicenter of the whole prayer. And that is unity. Unity. Five times in one chapter, he says, my prayer is that they be one. Almost like he had to say it so many times because we don't believe it today. And I, and I, I can't help but think that when Jesus is saying this prayer, that prophetically speaking, he's not thinking about the church of today. Because he knew how much we would need to hear this message that we need to be one. And what's amazing as you read this chapter is that the unity that Jesus has in mind here, this is the most cool thing in the whole, in the whole sermon to me when I was writing it. Because I told, I told my wife when I was writing this sermon, this is not one of those that I kind of had figured out beforehand. This was one of those where I was writing the sermon, and as I'm writing, I'm going, that's amazing. Oh my goodness, that's amazing. I, I wasn't writing it, okay? Here's the last thing. 
What's amazing is, as you read this, is that the unity that Jesus has in mind is not a doctrinal unity. Jesus doesn't have a a set of doctrines that you have to get all right in order for you to say, this is my brother, this is my sister. That's not the way he bases unity. It's not an ecumenical unity. It's not any any of those things. The kind of unity that Jesus has in mind here is a unique oneness, a supernatural unity. A supernatural kind of unity because what makes this unity different is that it's not based upon any shared worldly or fleshly experience. It's shared upon the real experience of Jesus Christ in the congregation. Church, I believe that right here, this is the Mariana Trench of Scripture. You can't get any deeper than this Scripture right here. Which is why I think we have 45,000 different denominations today because this is, one, this is one that we just don't want to go down. Because let me tell you something. When we are experiencing the power and the anointing of the Spirit in a shared community of followers and Jesus as, is manifesting Himself in your midst, you are going to care a whole lot less about fighting with your brother and sister and dividing. Why? Because you are going to be mesmerized by the presence of Jesus. And you know what? I don't know Jay from Adam. But I can tell you right now, somebody who listens to the Lord and trusts the Lord for all their money and goes overseas to pick up trash in Israel for, for, nine, or for uh, 90 days, that's a brother in Christ. Because he has those same two shared commitments that I have too. And he has the evidence of the anointing that has been poured on his life because of the fact that he's given himself to that. Now, folks, it's up to us we got to do something different. We've got to do something different. I love the Eastside Church of Christ family. But this ain't the only church in Snyder. And one of the things that the walk has taught me is that the walk has started to bring down those denominational barriers. You know why I think God's doing that here? You know why I think people keep coming out of the woodwork and saying, man, God's doing something with Snyder. I don't know. He keeps sending people here. Because there's coming a time when these walls and that sign is not going to make a bit of difference anymore. You're going to need to unite with people who had those shared commitments. There's a time coming when you're going to see the difference between a church and a kingdom community. And I'm not saying that they're, they're both mutually exclusive. A church can be a kingdom community, but there's a lot of churches out there that are not kingdom communities. They're just social clubs. There's a day coming when we're going to let go of these names. I want to prepare you for it. You're not, you're not going to use the name Church of Christ no more. Baptist Church, not going to use it no more. Pentecostal Church, not going to use it no more. Church of God, Church of Christ. Because when he returns, there's going to be one kingdom and one king. And we're all going to be a part of that. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, take a moment to pray. And um, I, want to, I want to say this. I was talking to some people the other day. I've been here eight months. And, uh, you know, you all know the reasons why I came and the miraculous things that happened around that. And, and I've been, honestly, Terry, I've been racking my brain. I've been going, Lord, what, do you, what in the world did you bring us here for? I mean, I'm doing what I feel like I'm supposed to be doing. I'm, I'm telling you guys about the Holy Spirit. I, 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 at the very beginning, I said, let's position our church for renewal and revival, for outpouring or whatever the Spirit wants to do. I pray that maybe... Perhaps God will begin the restoration plea again. 
And that maybe the Church of Christ will pick that mantle back up. And that maybe we will do it not trying to find the right set of church traditions to do on Sunday morning. But maybe we will restore the life and the vitality of the church by inviting His Holy Spirit in and letting Him lead us. Letting Him lead this church. Letting Him lead this movement and bring people to oneness in Christ. Let's pray. Father, you've heard everything that was said today. Lord, your will is that we be one. And the truth is, God, we're not. I don't know what to do other than to personally repent from my part in it, Lord. I preached for 15 years blaspheming the Holy Spirit, saying that he didn't work today. And God, how foolish was I? How foolish was I that the one being, the person of the Spirit who has been given to us as the final and great gift of of the new covenant, that it's his role and work to bring this love and unity. And somehow along the way, Lord, I lost that. I thought it was all about my thinking, my reasoning, my Bible study, how much I knew and how they were wrong and how I needed to prove everyone. I just, I repent of all that mess, Lord. God, I pray for soft hearts in your church. And I pray, Father, that as you begin to reveal more and more of these judgments and these things that you're allowing to come against our nation and against the nations of the world, I pray that you would give a great awakening in your church, Lord. Let there be a separation. I don't care. Lord, I get it. It's going to be messy. But let there be a separation between the wheat and the tares, Lord. Because we want to rise up and we want to be committed to following Jesus, our Savior, with our whole heart and accomplishing the will that he has for us to do here in Snyder, Texas. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you need to respond to this uh, invitation that we're about to offer you, uh, please, this is a uh, great opportunity if you need to be baptized um, for the forgiveness of your sins. If you want to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit yourself, or if you're a believer and you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, but you have not experienced a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit, come on down right now as we stand and sing.